Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a wonderful summer if you're in the Northern Hemisphere. This is the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I am Anthony, your host. So if your idea of a scriptural text is the Bible, whether the Hebrew Bible or the Christian New Testament, you probably think it's normal for a scriptural text to have such detailed historical narratives. And the Hebrew Bible has a lot of that. It has a lot more than that. The Christian New Testament is extraordinary uh, in the amount of detail that it tells us about provincial life in the Eastern Roman provinces, including what purport to be official government acts, how officials behave in the provinces, the economics of the cult of Artemis at Ephesus, how Roman legal appeals work, lots of Roman officials and army personnel crawling all over the place and cities and so forth. And in the midst of all that, there are some sermons and parables. The text is so historical that it is, in fact, one of the main sources that Roman historians use to understand provincial life in the early Roman Empire. And I'm not saying that all of its information is reliable. I mean, every every part of it has been and should be contested, and it was written long after the events it describes. But it is both wonderful and odd that a sacred text insists so much on that kind of historical granularity. So much so that centuries later, even in the Creed of Nicaea, uh, which is one of the foundational um, you know, confessions of faith that most Christians after the fourth century accept as a statement of their belief, contains references by name to a Roman official. Like, how weird is it that this Roman, like, middle management of the imperial apparatus this guy made it into the Creed of Nicaea. All right, the New Testament is, in a way, the historian's scriptural text. If you turn to the Quran, it is nothing like that at all. There's only a handful of vague and elusive references to possibly contemporary events. Really, just a handful. And it's a long text. You can't really do history based on the Quran. And it's kind of strange because it's this very, very long text, and it is we, we know when it was roughly put, you know, composed or dictated and put together, and it's right in this century, the 7th century, which is otherwise so sparse in terms of historical documentation, and we're so, we crave more texts to shed some light on this very important period, and it's right there, and you can barely squeeze anything out of it that that doesn't relate to the attitude toward God that is expected of a member of the Prophet's community. Now, later Muslim sources went back and filled in the biographical context for a lot of the chapters of the Quran, and, and they told very, very detailed stories about what each um, chapter of surah is um, addressing and what the circumstances of its composition, dictation, and all of that. There's this enormous, much, much later um, bibliography in Arabic about that. And, well, some of it might preserve some reliable memories. Um, a lot of it was later elaboration. It just can't be trusted as, as a corpus. Um, and so... Yeah, historians just have to kind of guess sometimes as to which traditions are reliable, which are not. A few things are beginning to come into focus now. For an example, I refer you to episode 53, I believe, with uh, Sean Anthony, where we talked about the uh, biography of the Prophet Muhammad in, 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 in later traditions. Now, as it happens, life in pre-Islamic Arabia is also beginning to come into focus from inscriptions and archaeology and closer readings of texts produced at the time outside of Arabia um, in all of the empires and kingdoms and realms that surrounded it from Rome and Persia and Aksum and so forth. 
they are revealing that there are some very striking omissions or silences in the Quran. Not that the Quran was under any obligation to give us a history of pre-Islamic Arabia, but it is self-consciously addressed to Arabic speakers. And yet the recent history of Arabic speakers is not reflected in there in the way in which we understand it. For example, there had been, within the past century, uh, very powerful states emerging out of uh, Himyar. Uh, Himyar was a very powerful kingdom in southwestern Arabia, or, or uh, modern Yemen, and we'll be talking about that. Uh, there was some Sasanian Persian presence. There was a lot of you know, Roman interference. That's not really reflected in the Quran. At the same time, the Quran gives the impression that the dominant religions against which the prophet was preaching were polytheistic, quote, paganism. Whereas what's emerging from the archaeology and the inscriptions is that there were many forms of monotheism that were very prominent um, in the Arabian Peninsula and certainly well known um, to the prophet and the community he was addressing. And these ranged from sort of Jewish-inflected versions to Christian-inflected versions, and also seems some native forms of, of non-specifically denominational monotheisms that had emerged um, in Arabia. And in fact, it seems that a lot of the language that the Quran uses to describe the new religion that we call Islam was from the existing language of religious cult in Arabia. So there are continuities and breaks and silences and parts of the picture that we have to fill in. And this is one of the most difficult areas of research um, that I've ever had to look at from afar. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm not entering that, uh, that area. I, I can't. Uh, but it's fascinating to watch people who have the extraordinary skills that are necessary uh, to enter into this area of research. My guest today is one of them. She is uh, Valentina Grasso, who, while a faculty member at Catholic University of America, published um, a really excellent book on this topic called Pre-Islamic Arabia, Societies, Politics, Cults, and Identities During Late Antiquity. Uh, she is now moving to Bard College, I think, in the next two weeks. Uh, so congratulations to her on that move. And the book see, uh, seeks to synthesize what was going on in terms of religious culture in, in Arabia uh, before the emergence of Islam, and not just in religious culture, because some of her arguments are that um, what, what we're seeing here in terms of imperial interventions from the outside were often driven more by trade uh, than uh, religious affiliation. You know, so you know, alliances were often had imperial motives rather than based on confessional affiliation. She explores the types of monotheisms that had emerged um, in Arabia before Islam and the traces the background of the language used for Allah in the Quran, you know, in those pre-existing traditions, um, how they were repurposed in the new religion. Um, all new religions do this. Um, it's not, not unique to Islam. She has archaeological experience and enviable linguistic skills. Um, so th again, that's why I like this kind of research. It's really extraordinary demonstrations um, of, of uh, exceptional skill. Okay, one more note before I stop. I mentioned Himyar, uh, the kingdom um, in what, what is today Yemen. Um, another term that comes up is Nabataean. Nabataean was another kingdom in North Western Arabia that was conquered by the Romans um, in, I think, 105 uh, AD, and uh, its, its capital was Petra, uh, where the famous uh, sort of sculpted facades are, you know, think Indiana Jones, um, and another place is the Hijaz, and that's the area of, sort of central Western Arabia where the Prophet uh, came from, and Islam emerged there. All right, those are all the sort of geographical terms that come up in our discussion. Um, I'll stop there. Thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes. Uh, here's my conversation with Valentina. Valentina, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So let me just ask at the get-go here, 
how many like ancient languages do you did you use for the writing of this book right not not modern <laughs> languages of research but like the primary yeah, yeah. source languages that's a great question. I didn't uh, check. I should have uh, counted them at some point. <laughs> well, definitely the languages of uh, um, ancient uh, pre-Islamic Arabia. So um, not just Arabic, also South Arabian languages, uh, North Arabian languages, uh, um, Nabataean, um, for sure. Syriac was definitely one that I really needed to to be master of, uh, be a master of for this kind of research. And then Greek. Uh, Greek is always useful. I'm very grateful for uh, myself at uh, 11 years old deciding to take uh, uh, education based on Latin and Greek because, you know, it's actually right. turned out to be useful. Um, what else? Ethiopic. Um, yes, yes. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's yes. obvious, right? Yeah, yeah. No, well, it's not obvious, but that was something that I decided to learn while I was doing my PhD. So it's, ah. I guess, the most recent one that I... Uh, became familiar with. I was lucky because in Cambridge there was somebody teaching gas when I was there at right. Ralfli. So um, yeah, I guess these are the main ones. Uh, Armenian, just a little bit. Sometime uh, there was a few Armenian sources that were useful. Um, and Farsi, that was not really super useful for this book, uh, but yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, there are, in, in a few cases, descriptions uh, that are written in uh, Persian languages were part of the picture. So sure. having a bit of Farsi was useful. <laughs> All right, let's cut it off there because I'm feeling increasingly <laughs> inadequate here. Um, and also you're an archaeologist, right? Yes. So I, I undertook now, I think, five archaeological projects, uh, five archaeological digs. Um, yeah. The first one was in Jordan. And uh, I was based at the, in the Madaba Plains, but the precise place was, uh, it's called Talisban. And it's uh, Andrews University project. They are excavating mm -hmm. a Byzantine church there. And again, I'm just saying Byzantine or Roman because the dating is right. still very much uncertain. Um, probably between the 4th and 6th century, but very difficult to date. Um, and then I did a bit of research in Petra. That was more restoration. Um, a restored Nabataean uh, pool complex in Petra. Um, and then I did a bit of research in Sicily. Um, Ethiopia, unfortunately, I had to do it remotely, which I know it sounds a bit weird, but it was during the COVID uh, outbreak. So there was a lot of data that was just stored in the computers of John Hopkins University that needed to be cataloged to make, right. you know, we needed to make sense of this data. Okay. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, virtual archaeology why not virtual archaeology the last one was in iraq in, in the iraqi kurdistan that was a real dig you know yeah. with the mud the sand the dirt and uh, the weather that was miserable all the time yeah lots okay. of cucumbers and tomatoes <laughs> so, you're bona fides as an archaeologist um yeah all right <laughs> and it's good that you have all that experience because it all comes together in this book. I mean, it's really a synthesis of archaeology and epigraphy and history and the historical sources. Um, and so before we get to some of the arguments that you make, can you give us a general sense of what we collectively uh, knew about pre-Islamic Arabia? I don't know, about 25, 30 years ago, because the picture has trained dramatically like i know this from just what's available to me as a complete outsider to that field um so what did it look like what uh, and what sources were used for it yeah so i guess the biggest uh, difference from now was the lack of um description i mean it's not like we didn't have descriptions but we have some really important ones now that were just not available 25 years ago i'm thinking for example about descriptions that have been very recently found in the jazz so the region where mecca and medina are found and some of them are actually unpublished so ahmad al-jalad will publish these descriptions and they have really the potential of changing completely our view of pre-islamic arabia probably even changing a few things i said in the books in the book so we'll right. see about that i'm really looking forward to reading the publication um, so because we didn't have much description, so we were relying much more heavily on Muslim sources and non-Muslim sources, um, especially Greek and Greco-Roman sources, um, also Syriac, uh, I guess, sources. Um, these sources tend to depict pre-Islamic Arabia as um, 
a savage uh, polytheistic uh, region um, full of barbarians. Uh, if you actually um, read the Latin so the Greek and Latin sources, this is the picture you have mm -hmm. um, a land of either completely empty, and uh, that's because of the climate, or full of people that are killing each other and venerating uh, pagan shrines and idols. Um, the Muslim sources also kind of uh, uh, mention a heavy polytheistic environment, especially at the dawn of Islam. These descriptions, so descriptions that have been found, are changing completely our um, understanding of the past of pre-Islamic, oh, the European Peninsula in particular, of late antique pre-Islamic Arabia. And um, just to give an example about other things that have changed, for example, we didn't know anything about literacy rate in pre-Islamic mm. Arabia. And now there have been so many studies, uh, um, some really innovative ones, comparing it with other regions uh, to show how literate um, the population of Arabia was in pre-Islamic times. And, you know, you actually get some really unexpected results by reading the descriptions. And then I guess... The other main change would regard the uh, connection of Arabia to its surroundings. So now there are many more uh, books that try to place Arabia in connection with the wider late antique world, the world of the first millennium, uh, emphasize its trade in connection, for example, within the Indian Ocean trade um, or the Mediterranean world. And this is something that you know it was just not there 25 years ago, I think. So this would be the biggest change. Yeah. yeah, there was this picture that was reconstructed largely either from the Quran, which implies that pre-Islamic Arabia is just polytheistic and, you yes. know, not, uh, or from the fragments of pre-Islamic Arabic poetry, which sounded to me a lot like Anglo-Saxon or Viking poetry. It's a bunch of people going around <laughs> killing each other and stealing yeah. each other's cattle or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of heroic ethos and so on. You know, pre-Islamic poetry was very much neglected, you know, as a corpus so 25 years ago. Now there are some interesting studies. For example, Peter Webb has published a bit on this, um, proving that pre-Islamic poetry is actually pre-Islamic. It's not, uh, uh, you know, something that uh, was not created during the pre-Islamic period. It was just redacted later, which just put down in writing later. So Right. That was a big problem because it's, it's not, it doesn't appear until much later work. So there's always the question of how much it's been sort of tampered with. Um, and also, I've heard Ahmad talk about just how many inscriptions are found. And this is basically stuff they carved on rocks here and there, right? Just, <laughs> right? For the most yeah, part. Yeah. Right? So, so it's okay. The situation is quite different uh, in different regions of Arabia. So, in the south, you have inscriptions also, for example, on statues or incense burners have inscriptions. And of course, coins may have some inscriptions. In the north of the Arabian Peninsula, it's more, again, just graffiti on the rocks in the right. middle of nowhere. Um, very brief, uh, in the case of ancient North Arabian inscriptions, uh, you just have a name in most of the cases. Mm. may have a formula, some sort of invocation, uh, but that's it. A drawing sometimes, a really nice drawings <laughs> next to the names. Um, but in the south of the Arabian Peninsula, you have monumental inscriptions too. Right. Those are quite long, they're written by the kings or the elites, uh, you know, they they can actually become they can actually be very long and con the content is very various. Uh, you have archival lists, for example. You have receipts. You have letters. Uh, uh, you have all sorts of things in the south of the Arabian Peninsula. But if you go, if you look at, for example, the center, you don't really have much epigraphic evidence, or at least not as many as in the south. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the languages uh, that are being used here uh, and possibly the scripts. Now, I know this gets very, very technical, but so for a non-specialist audience, what are the languages that are being used in these inscriptions? Okay, so just to make it simple to everyone, I think there are three big corpora of inscriptions in, uh, in pre-Islamic Arabia. The first one is called usually ancient North Arabian inscriptions. And these are inscriptions found around the Syrian desert, mostly in the Syrian desert. Um, again, these are the graffiti, uh, just personal names, uh, a brief evocation, drawings. Uh, they're found in the middle of nowhere. And it's interesting because they seem to have been written down by all social strata. Uh, so we have, uh, for example, pastors uh, uh, writing them. We have nomads. Uh, and, you know, there have been quite 
a few studies recently proving that they were written down by people that were just bored. They were in the middle of the desert. They didn't know what to do. So they decided to write down their names somewhere. Right. It's, it's, it's like graffitis today in yes. many, many ways. Um, the other big corpus is the ancient South Arabian one. And the ancient South Arabian one is mostly based in Yemen, in today's Yemen, uh, and also a bit in the south of Saudi Arabia. And these inscriptions, again, are monumental, but they can also be found on objects. Uh, they can be long, they can be brief. We also have stick inscriptions, so inscriptions found, for example, on palm leaves or wood, um, pieces of woods, uh, fragments uh, found in South Arabia. Again, very various in content. And then the third big uh, corpus of uh, inscriptions of pre-Islamic Arabia is Aramaic um, inscriptions, mostly Nabataean inscriptions or Old Arabic, sometimes also called Paleo-Arabic. There, there is a big debate about the terminology. Some people mm. actually classify the Nabataean uh, in various ways. You have Nabate proper Nabataean, you have transitional Nabataean, you have just, there is just so much going on. But these are basically the ancestors, you could say, of Arabic, Arabic as we know it. So the Arabic script, as we know it today, is really uh, a continuation of the Nabataean script. And again, going back to the question you answered, you asked before, um, 25 years ago, many people believed that the Arabic script was derived from Syriac. Now we know it was derived from uh, Nabataean, and it's just thanks to these new findings that are coming up every single day. Um, Excellent. Yeah, the situation is not entirely dissimilar to Greek and the origins of the Greek script. Uh, you know, back in the 8th century BC, when in the same way, like when it first appears, it's it seems to be a bunch of people who are just carving their names and and, and possibly because they're bored. And like on, on the island of Thera, it's usually who had sex with whom because, you know, I mean, they're, they're Greeks. <laughs> and so that's that what comes, what comes naturally. Um, and you have all of these different dialects. And, you know, there's a question about, you know, how the script is being modified and so on. So all these languages that you mentioned, would they have been to some degree mutually intelligible, like across the peninsula or or not? That's a great question. So in some cases, we also, we also have bilingual, bilingual inscription and trilingual inscriptions. So, so pointing that there was some people able to read some, some people, uh, some people able to read some other languages. So it's interesting because, for example, in the case of ancient North Arabian inscriptions, sometimes we also have ancient North Arabian and Greek inscriptions so mm. just in the regions that are really bordering the Roman Empire. In the south, we have in some cases uh, Gaz inscriptions, uh, um, and also we have South Arabian inscriptions in Ethiopia and Eritrea. So, you know, in terms of multilingual, uh, multilingual multilinguism, um, the studies are really in their infancy uh, right. for in regards of pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, there is yeah. just so much that I expect people to uncover in the next couple of years about this, thanks to the new findings. But yeah, it's still too early in a way. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And, and probably the same goes for the following question. So is there in the documentation any sense of like uh, a kind of Arab identity or ethnicity before Islam? Like, Yeah, this is a huge question. And you know what? It was actually for a while while I was uh, writing my PhD, I, I really wanted to call it an Arab-less Arabia. <laughs> I'm just thankful for my supervisor to say that this was just a bad name, bad name for the well for the dissertation and for the monograph. But yeah, I I try to argue in the book, and some people have done something similar before me that we really don't have Arabs in pre-Islamic Arabia. We have Arabians, and I say that because. I think that the mention of the so-called Arabs that uh, we found in inscriptions, but also in uh, Neo-Assyrian classical sources, uh, Old Testament uh, sources, you know, very, dif very different kind of sources. But all this material mentioning the Arabs um, really does not point to one particular group or one ethnicity. Um, they mostly refer to a region, which is the one of Central Arabia and parts of uh, um, North Arabia. So it's interesting, for example, to note that the South Arabians, they never call themselves Arabs. Right. They call themselves as Sabians, Emirates, uh, you know, according to the kingdom. There are different kingdoms in uh, South Arabia, and they all call themselves after the name of the kingdom. Uh, but they say in the title um, that they're ruling over the Arabs. So the Arabs are clearly another group. They're not 
the South Arabians. And, you know, just by looking at any sort of Greco-Roman source, you get the picture from there too that the South Arabians are separated. You know, they are the ones living in Arabia Felix, in Arabia Daimon, Happy Arabia, whatever, but it's not part of Arabia. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, I think that we cannot really say that there are there is just one single Arab group in pre-Islamic time. And people have been arguing that we have one common language in pre-Islamic Arabia. I don't think we will be able to tell that with certainty at any point. I don't think any description will actually clarify this. Um, I think it's just a purely geographical term. And I think it would be better to say Arabians. Right. E- e- even as a sort of cautious placeholder for now, and until if we ever attain greater clarity on that point, yeah. uh, that's fair enough. So you you were really thinking about Arabless Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. It's interesting because I remember it's Glenn Bowersock, I think, who had written a book on, it was a him, himyar, which we're going to talk about in a moment, mm-hmm. which parts of which converted to some sort of Judaism. And he, he, he wrote somewhere that he was tempted to call it Jewish Arabia, but people yeah. told him, don't, yeah, don't that do that. Yeah, that was not, yeah, that was also a bad name, I think. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's not create international incidents here. Exactly. Um, yeah. So the major state in pre-Islamic Arabia is Himyar, and so that's south in, in Yemen. So can yeah. you tell us a little bit about Himyar and, and you know what, what it did, what we know it for, and you know how it was so different from the way in which other Arabians were living? Yeah. So first of all, we can say it was a Himyar only after two seventy five, because before two seventy five we have several. Uh, other kingdoms all competing in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, well, in the south of the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, we have Saba, we have uh, the kingdom of the Mineans, uh, we have Adramaut. But in 2275, uh, Imyar managed to subjugate all other kingdoms of South Arabia, and there is just this one kingdom. And it's interesting because the first thing they do is to uh, adopt one script, Sabian, uh, just one language. Um, and also one god, but maybe we can leave this yeah, yeah. for a moment <laughs> and just focus on uh, on the political side of things. Um, it's interesting also that this happens uh, when the other uh, main kingdom of the Red Sea, the kingdom of Aksum, is becoming more and more powerful. And we, we see Aksum conquering, uh, for example, the um, Noba, uh, which are between the southern uh, modern Egypt, Bali, and Central Sudan. Um, they also conquer Kazu, and at that point, they start interacting more and more uh, with Imyar. Um, Imyar, it's really uh, a huge, um, well, it's really a powerful kingdom at this point in the 3rd, 4th century CE, uh, but it has to compete with, with Aksum in regards of trade, for example. We know that all the um, there is a lot of going on in terms of wars. We could say wars on the Red Sea, but also you know wars that affected the wider late antique world um, in in this period. Um, and also, it's interesting to see the relationship between Imyar and Central Arabia. I said before that they conquered the Arabs or the Arabians um, at some point, and they add them in the title. Um, the king adds. Um, Basically, I'm also the king of the Arabs in the title. And this also happens right after the unification. So in the third century CE. Um, yeah, it's it's really an interesting dynamic there. Uh, you know, the, um, the kingdom of Imyar doesn't seem to ally itself with uh, Rome, Iran, or, and of course, it's competing with Aksum. So it's an independent uh, um, polity in the Arabian Peninsula, able to survive on its own and be independent. This is why I guess it's so fascinating. (laughs) Yes. And and by the way, when I first came across it, it was in Procopius, you know, years and years and years ago. And the Greek sources call the Himyarites Homerites. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) As if they were followers of Homer, which is hilarious. But anyway. Um, And so Himyar... Or elements in in the leadership of Himyar make this very interesting choice to convert to a sort of form of monotheism, which you'll tell us about in a moment. Um, But first, I think we should talk a little bit about the terminology that we use to categorize these religions and classify them. Because like like I said earlier, I mean, the Muslim sources give the impression that pre-Islamic Arabia is polytheistic, Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, the, the, our recent findings in all the epigraphy suggest that it was probably mostly monotheistic, but there's a kind of breakdown in the distinction between polytheism and monotheism. So can you tell us how is, how is it possible to see those things as kind of blurring into each other to the point where it's difficult to know which is which? Yeah, this is really a tough question. So broadly speaking, without focusing on Arabia, in recent years, there have been many people trying to come up with the solution this problem. And there have been suggestions of using terms such as pagan monotheism, um, monotheism or monotheists, of course. Um, and then also people trying to use the term enotheism, uh, megatheism, uh, and so on. The problem is that there is just no one accepted definition of these terms uh, at the moment. So applying them to Arabia, to the history of Islamic Arabia was really complicated issue for me. I try to do my best and I tend to use enotheism quite a lot in the book, especially in the chapters on uh, um, the 4th century, 4th and 5th century Miar, and then the chapter on the uh, um, and the rise of uh, uh, Islam in the jazz. I think that we can say that for many aspects, the gods that were venerated in Saudi Arabia in the 4th and 5th century um, share many features, for example, with the high god of the Greco-Roman world, uh, the god of the Ipsisterian um, people. Uh, so we have very blurred nomenclature, very blurred terminology to define this god. Um, people were supposed to not really convert to monotheism uh, um, to become followers of this new uh, syncretistic, I don't know if I want to use this term, but yeah, I guess in some way, syncretistic uh, new um, faith. And we see also something similar in the jazz when uh, um, the uh, in the sixth century CE, when all the polytheistic inscriptions seem to have been to have been erased and disappeared, and there is just one high god emerging in uh, the surroundings of Mecca and Medina. And it's interesting because you know if you read the Quran, um, the people that are the enemies of Muhammad they're actually called the um, associators, the mushrikun. So it seems. You can really read this term as people that are having some sort of enotheistic, uh, enotheistic conception of God and uh, Allah in this case. Yeah. Yeah, well, what is the problem that the term henotheism is trying to solve? In other words, what what is the reality that we're trying to capture with that term? Because I don't, some of our audience may not know what that means. Yeah, so we have one God uh, emerging as supreme. So it's an I God. And this God is usually just called Lord of the heaven and of the earth sometimes, or the merciful one, the high God, the God, and that's it. Mm. Um, and this is the main God. But you also have, for a certain amount of time, other lesser divine beings. Um, in the case of uh, Islam, you can you can argue that these divine beings are still present in the form of the jinn, for example. Mm. Uh, in a way, you could say also in Christianity in the mm. form of angels, right? So, um, or even the saints. Um, but yeah, so it's it's a slow. I'm just want, I just wanted to emphasize that it's a really slow process from mm. monotheism from polytheism to monotheism. It's not just an abrupt abrupt process that happens in one day that it's top down it's just one ruler deciding one day i'm just gonna have one single god and everybody will have to do the same so yeah yeah it's a similar process that you see in for example neoplatonism which is also yeah, impossible to categorize yeah. in these terms insofar as it involves worship because it's sharply hierarchical but also multifarious at the lower levels it's just very complex Exactly, yeah. Um, okay, so what happens in Himyar and why do you come up with the term cautious monotheism? <laughs> I guess it was precisely because of these, because I was not really uh, sure which one was the best uh, term to define what was going on in Himyar. And I sure. I don't know, I just thought that maybe a simple um, way of defining what was happening was actually more effective, uh, especially for a general audience. So... Yeah, so in after the unification of Imyar, we have um, the king of Imyar, Makikarib Yunaim, deciding that there is just going to be one single script. And in a way, he decides also one single god. But again, I don't want this to be to sound like a, a sudden, abrupt decision that happens in one day. Because as I said before, if you look at descriptions, just by looking at description for a moment, 
you really do have various terminologies employed for defining one god. And you also have, in many ways, indication that these people were venerating, uh, um, were attending cults at local synagogues, but were not converting, for example. So they were one foot in, one foot out of Judaism. If Judaism was really a thing in Saudi Arabia, that's not another big matter of uh, uh, discussion. Um, but it's it's really cautious also because it's um, it's in a way a clever way of making sure that it's not um, disappointing any surrounding um, kingdom and empire. I'm thinking about Aksum, who converts to Christianity roughly at the same point. Uh, and again, that's also a very vague form of Christianity. If you look at descriptions of Aksum, the Greek side is very uh, precise. It's very 100% Christian, we could say there is uh, Jesus mentioned there and all of that. But the guest side and the South Arabian side of descriptions, it's very it's very vague. And it's the same thing with the description of the conquest that they are making uh, throughout uh, the Horn of Africa. Uh, they're much more careful with the Greek side in terms of conquests. Um, you see that also in, uh, in Imiar. Uh, we know that there was a Jewish community present in uh, Saudi Arabia in the 4th and 5th century. And we know that not just by looking at descriptions, which are very clear about the presence of this community, but also by looking at other Greco-Roman sources. I'm thinking, for example, about Philostorgius, who says that there are Jews in Saudi Arabia who are practicing circumcision and they are part of the entourage of the king. So they clearly had a, a voice, a role. They were part of this process of uh, conversion, if we can even say conversion, um, you know, when applied to... Saudi Arabia. I would be very cautious with these terms. Um, right. So there's a double caution here. On the one hand, you're cautious with the terminology, but on the other hand, you're postulating that there's a degree of caution, like on the part of the kings. Yeah. Right. Yes. So precisely, it's not just us. <laughs> yes. So yeah. you do have some inscriptions that are like much more overtly Jewish. That don't seem to be associated with the the court or the monarchy, but then you have a bunch of inscriptions that are seem to be like kind of yeah adjacent. We're not exactly. yes monotheism, but we're not yeah. trying to commit to anything. We yeah. don't want to offend anybody. Yeah, yeah, that's why I call them the Jewish sympathizers because you know it's really like a sympathy, but it's not there one hundred percent. Well, on the other side, you do have proper Jewish inscriptions, but it's right. interesting because you don't have any mention of this community outside of. Saudi Arabia, you would expect to find, you know, Jews in other regions actually mentioning this powerful king, kingdom emerging in uh, the south of the Arabian Peninsula, but you don't have any of these. You do have some inscriptions, uh, again, uh, found in Palestine mentioning Emirates, um, and these are Jewish inscriptions, but that's it. You don't really yeah. have any other mention. Yeah. So you also make the interesting observation, which I actually had hadn't thought about before, about how Himyar is absent from the historical memory of the Quran. It's just kind of yeah. not there. Now, <laughs> later Arabic historians did write its history and brought it back in, the Tabari and so forth. But why, I mean, given that it was such a powerful place, you know, even up to the time when the prophet was born, yeah. why is it so missing from the background? <laughs> or any thoughts yeah. about that? Yeah, no, it's it's a really interesting question. And I'm actually planning to write more about this um, in the future. But I think what's really interesting is that, again, there is no mention whatsoever in the Quran. And we're talking about really the most powerful political entity of the Arabian Peninsula throughout the centuries. Because, again, this is really a millennial civilization. It's not something that was... I'm not just talking about Miyar, I'm talking about the entire South Arabian kingdoms. Mm -hmm. uh, they were there since the first millennium BC. Uh, so really a millennial civilization. So it just disappears completely. And I think the most plausible explanation for, the, for this is that, first of all, um, it, um, eliminating uh, the South Arabians, uh, and especially eliminating the South Arabian political entity it's useful. It's a useful way of showing the importance of one single of the caliphate as being as emerging from basically nothing. It's it's a same uh, the same experiment that is done on the religious side, basically arguing that they are just uh, they are just pagan polytheist people in the Arabian Peninsula. So you emphasize uh, Muhammad's prophetic career. You do the same for on a political ground for 
um, the caliphate. So you el eliminate all political entities of the Arabian Peninsula, you eliminate South Arabia, but also the political entities of North, uh, West and Northeast Arabia. And you just say that, you know, this, this was empty. And then Muhammad came out of the blue and was able to create, you know, a community, a single ethnicity, single language and all. Um, it's interesting because, yes, you do mention, you did mention the Tabari, for example, mentions quite a bit uh, the Emirate and, of course, the most uh, famous uh, writer um, of um, South Arabia is Al-Amdani, Al who is a Yemen Yemenite um, scholar. Um, and there's been a revival also in recent, uh, with recent uh, Yemeni nationalistic propaganda. So they've been emphasizing a bit uh, this this lost past of uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, I don't know. I think in a way it's something similar to what happens in the Roman context uh, when you have memory sanctions. <laughs> but with the Roman context, you only have memory sanctions uh, towards uh, enemies. Here you don't have it towards an enemy. You have towards someone that is actually you know preceding you. Uh, this is supposed to be part of your heritage, but in doing so, you emphasize, uh, you know, the cohesive element of the Arab conquest and the Muslim conquest. So, yeah, yeah the more the more you bring it yeah. in, the more sort of legitimacy you give it. Yeah. It, it it becomes a potential alternative that you just just best not to acknowledge. You know, sometimes the things that are completely silenced are more sort of dangerous right on the part of someone engaged in that kind of project than the things that are overtly attacked which sometimes mm -hmm. are attacked because they're easy to kind of refute and and put down like this exactly. polytheism which must not have been a very credible thread at the time yeah yeah it's really like a matter of creating and eliminating collective uh, identities yeah. you know you and legitimization process which is always binary you have to del delegitimize someone to legitimize someone else right mm -hmm. so yeah, put in a very broad um, So where do we see Christianity in pre-Islamic Arabia? Or where do you find it? Yeah, so Christianity is definitely um, active. Well, it's definitely part of the south of, of the Arabian Peninsula from the 5th century onwards. Um, I would say probably a little bit before that too, but we don't really have many sources before um, of Christianity before the 5th century. At the end of the 5th century, we have inscriptions, uh, mostly located around the oasis of Najran, which is uh, plays a huge part, uh, uh, a, a huge role in the history of Islamic Arabia. Um, if you want, we can talk more about this maybe later. But um, we have inscriptions coming from there, and then we also have some literary sources actually pointing to the arrival of Christianity in Saudi Arabia in the fifth century CE. And it's interesting because there are sources written in many different languages, uh, and also in a way it's the same picture so we have for example a very uh, recently studied uh, um, chronicle from edessa written in syriac uh, pointing to the arrival of christianity at the end of the fifth century thanks to trading notes from the north so this is two edessan uh, capti captives who arrive in saudi arabia and they managed to um, convert the king of uh, saudi arabia and you find pretty much the same story with just the names changed in later Muslim um, histories. And I'm thinking about the one of Ibn Shak and Al-Taibari. So it's interesting because, you know, it's a Christian story. It's uh, probably written in Edessa um, in the 6th century CE, but then you also find it in uh, later Muslim sources. Uh, 200 years later, uh, just the names uh, have changed. Um, and uh, again, descriptions prove that Christianity was actually a thing at that point. And you have also Christianity in the north, in northwest Arabia and northeast Arabia, um, but that's a different story. Uh, it's a completely different story. In northwest Arabia, it's prominent because of the connection with the Roman Empire. And in the case of northeast Arabia, we're starting to have a good picture now, thanks to new discoveries. There's been a really important one, a monastery, uh, a couple of months ago, excavated by NYU um, in... Uh, uh, East Arabia, but again, this is the, the picture of East Arabia will ch definitely change in the next couple of years. And we are uh, also in an infancy phase here. Right. And for the record, I should say that your book does talk quite a lot about the northern arc um, and the Arabic speakers who were affiliated with the Roman Empire and the Persian Sasanian Empire and their whole situation. 
Uh, just for the purposes of focusing on Central and Southern Arabia, we decided to sort of leave them out because yeah, they're, yeah. A, they're a whole other, you know, we start talking about, you know, inter-imperial politics and it gets very complicated um, there, but they're, they're a fascinating topic in themselves. Um, so one other argument that you make in the book, uh, which I find fascinating, and by the way, I completely agree with you about this, is that the religious history of Arabia at this time has as much, if not more, to do with things like trade routes and politics and imperial control than it does about, you know, I mean, to not to caricature, but some sort of you know, Protestant, you know, individual spirituality and faith, you know, and so forth. Yeah. Can you give us uh, like a, a a striking example or a, a, a case study of where you see like trade routes and imperial interests mm -hmm. kind of d determining the religious history that we see? Yeah, so Anthony, this is actually my question because I'm uh, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm writing a second monograph right now, which is going to be called the Trading Fate. So it's actually the topic of my next monograph too. Um, so again, just to focus on South Arabia once more because it's uh, it's easy in a way. We're talking about that already. Um, we have mention of South Arabia in ancient times. Uh, um, Already in, in um, around the 500 around 500 BC, we have mentions, for example, in uh, the work of Sappho, we have uh, Horus, mm. Virgil, Pliny the Elder, and so on. And we know that it was a thriving uh, again um, region of the Arabian Peninsula, able to uh, form important political but also trading partnership with the Roman Empire and the Indian Ocean world, as we will see in, uh, I guess I will say in a minute. Uh, on the other side of the Red Sea, you have the Kingdom of Aksum, which I just, as I said before, becomes more and more powerful during late antiquity. We really don't have much information about what was going on there before the Kingdom of Aksum. Um, but we know that in the third century, in the fourth century, it's becoming powerful, it's interacting more with Nimiyar. And then in the sixth century, when these political entities are both having their high day, um, they really interact uh, um, with each other during the episode of the so-called Massacre of Najran. Uh, Massacre of Najran, which takes place in 523, many people have been arguing on the basis of fleet resources that this is a religious event. It was motivated because the um, Jewish prince of Saudi Arabia was persecuting the Christian population of the oasis of Najran and surrounding oasis around Najran. And so the Aksumite Christian king, Negus Caleb, decided to invade Imyar, invade Saudi Arabia to defend the Christian uh, population of Najran. Mm -hmm. And he did so supposedly supported by the Roman emperor, but that's another story. Right. Um, I argue in the book that this is not really, uh, there is no religious motivation whatsoever in the sense that it's more a casus belli, it's a more... It's more like the, um, I don't know how you say it in English, but it's really an ex expedient, I guess, a in a pretext. way. A pretext. A pretext, yes, precisely. A, pre a pretext, because the, what was, was really going on was um, the culmination of several invasions, several raids that were happening uh, you know, between these two kingdoms, because they both wanted to control the Indian Ocean trade routes. They both wanted to control the caravan trade routes that was passing through the Arabian Peninsula. And so at that point, they interact. They, uh, the Aksumite invade the Emirates. They managed to put the Christian king on the throne, but it's really an Aksumite king on the throne at that point. And then it just lasts a couple of years because this man is able to, the successor is able to rebel. And we have an actual Emirate prince on the throne of Saudi Arabia a couple of years later. But, you know, since the the, um, the king that is placed on the throne is Christian and the following king, uh, the successor is also Christian, people have been emphasizing this Christian element in the story. I think it's more, um, it affects more traders and Christian traders, uh, Roman traders uh, than, you know, just... Uh, monks, missionaries, and uh, religious men. You have to remember that the literary um, sources that we have on pre-Islamic Arabia, most of them at least, uh, to exclude the uh, um, epigraphic sources, for, I would say pretty much all of them, 99% of them are written by men of faith. They're written by theologians. Uh, mm -hmm. um, and so the, you know, the Christian um, element is really emphasized in the sources themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And for folks should know that so that Red Sea Indian Ocean 
nexus is like one of the key trade routes in yeah, like yeah. the whole of the ancient world, right? Massive volumes of very expensive stuff going through there. And even the Roman emperor Anastasius in Constantinople had tried to control and tax that, like control over that part of the world was like a major, major yeah. economic asset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really fun. And also because of the exports uh, that come from these region, uh, regions yeah. too, you know, from uh, Aksum, there are all sorts of trade goods that are circulated uh, throughout the late antique world, uh, for example. So it's not just the things that come from outside the Red Sea. It's also like the local products right. of the Red Sea that are in the Okay, market. so we'll look forward to your next book on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we can talk we can talk more about that then um so let's move to the middle of the peninsula now to the hijaz um mm. yeah where where islam appeared um so what kind of a place was this broadly mm. speaking like in its economy politics sort of religion so what's the background there yeah so first of all there were many people before you know the late antique period that there were really eager to conquer the jazz. You know, it's not just a, a place that becomes attractive in the late antique period with the right of Islam and so on. It was, for example, already in Abonidus, uh, he tried to conquer the jazz. And then we have the Nabataeans uh, that mm. really established a sort of second capital in the jazz. Now you have Petra, but then you have a sort of Petra of the jazz uh, too. Uh, when the Nabatean, the kingdom of the Nabatean collapsed, uh, um, and we have the Roman, and the Romans also lose control of the um, of the jazz. Um, we see Mecca Medina, well, appearing more frequently, I guess, in the epigraphic in terms of inscriptions. Medina is better attested than Mecca in terms of inscriptions because it fell under the control of the Emirates in the sixth century CE. Um, but we know a bit more of Mecca thanks to the inscriptions coming from the jazz uh, and especially surrounding Mecca. We have, first of all, we have inscriptions uh, uh, of the Nabataean period that really tell us quite a lot about the ethnic uh, environment of the region. For example, there, were, uh, there was a quite um, flourishing Jewish population in the jazz in the Nabataean period. And this is something that has not been very much studied. People usually tend to focus on the constitution of Medina, which mm -hmm. does mention Jews. But we also have inscriptions uh, coming from the jazz mentioning the Jews in uh, the pre-Islamic period. I guess the main uh, focus of many inquiries uh, into pre-Islamic jazz has been trade, especially after the publication of Patricia Cron's uh, book on uh, Meccan trade and the rise of Islam in 1987. Um, there have been people claiming that there was no sort of trade going on around the jazz, people actually emphasizing this trade and saying that this is something that you can see really until the rise of Islam. There is no, um, the trade never ended in pre-Islamic Arabia in, that, in this region. And if you think about the, um, well, I guess, psychological structure, the economy of uh, of uh, Mecca Medina really had to rely on trade. They, they cannot survive just on agriculture. Uh, I think there was definitely some trading routes and trade going on around Mecca Medina. And I think that Mecca being a pilgrimage center already in pre-Islamic times uh, really played the role in these um, trade routes of the period. You know, trade routes passed through Mecca, which was also a pilgrimage site. So, of course, you know, you see this merging and interaction between um, faith and trade. Also, just by looking at the case of pre-Islamic jazz. Um, and then you have the Kaaba mentioned, you know, as the Kaaba in later Muslim sources. But it's interesting that it's also mentioned as a pagan shrine, um, for example, at the time of the massacre of Nashran and shortly after that. So, hmm. yeah, it was definitely an interesting environment. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that there were Christian communities in the jazz too, because it just doesn't make any sense to have them all uh, just in the south and in the north of the Arabian Peninsula. And the fact that we don't have any traces of this Christian communities or any clear trace of these uh, Christian communities uh, is just, you know, an argument to excellence. So we, we just don't have the traces, but it just doesn't mean that they were not there. It just makes sense that there was a flourishing uh, Christian community as there was a Jewish Christ a Jewish uh, community in the jazz in this period. Right. And we know that thanks to inscriptions. So yeah. who are the gods Allah and Rahman before Muhammad? 
Yeah, so there are several inscriptions so, um, mentioning these gods um, in a way, in an interchangeable way. But it's interesting because they're also found in the Quran. And I guess this is why they attracted so much attention recently. And well, um, or generally speaking, they received much attention. So the god Rachman is also found in the south of the Arabian Peninsula. And it's one of the main gods of uh, the kingdom of Inyar. So because of this, there have been suggestions saying that this god, in a way, uh, migrated from the south to the Hejaz at the dawn of Islam and it became incorporated with Allah. Uh, Allah literally means the God, you know, so as such, it was also the God of the Christians. And we do have mention of Allah in Christian inscriptions. So in the south and in the north of the Arabian Peninsula, we also have a few from the Jazz itself. And it's interesting that these gods, yes, were definitely merged in a sort of way, but there are also passages in the Quran that mention them as in opposition to one another. Um, mm. There are, yeah, so it's it's a complicated matter. Um, if you also accept for accept the talbiyat, which are the invocations uh, um, that were pronounced during the pilgrimage to Mecca to be pre-Islamic, you also find these names uh, too. So it's not just descriptions, you find them in several sources. Um, you also find just a god called La, but that's you know, just a way of saying God, and uh, it's uh, it's not really indicative of anything really. Uh, but people like to read maybe a bit too much in uh, on some of the descriptions, just because they are convenient in a way. I know that, for example, descriptions that have been found in uh, and the jazz by Akmad Al Jalad do mention one monotheistic God, and if I remember co- correctly, they do mention him as the God. So. There are various ways and various descriptions uh, found in, the, in different contexts. So Christians, mm, monotheistic, cautious monotheistic descriptions, so we could say, <laughs> and, and others mentioning these gods in an interchangeable way. Um, complicates the picture, for sure. For it is very complicated. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you, you devote quite a bit of attention in your book to tracing the history of these terms that appear in the Quran in the inscriptions and sort of trying to understand the context from which they were drawn. And again, I mean, I I think it's important to stress that it's very difficult to, to identify this kind of language as being either monotheistic or whatever, when the terms are so vague that even in like classical Greek, you could use the term of theos, the God just by Mm -hmm. itself generically to refer to like, any god, all the gods, some particular god, like some, yeah. you know, and the, you find this like in Plato all the time. It's like the god said, and it's like some god, whatever. And yeah. Allah, I seem to think, kind of functions that way. Like mm-hmm. it's sort of the god, you might have a particular one in mind, or it's that one, or. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's uh, this actually makes me think if it's a cautious monotheism just to us or to them too, you know? It's, uh, is it blurred? to us or is it blurred to them to the people actually um right. you know finding this description so was it unclear to them were they able to actually com- you know make a confusion and venerate uh, and make a prayer in front of a christian inscription without thinking that it was a christian inscription you know that sort of thing um absolutely yeah. i mean how can you know these things anyway i mean it- you know, in ancient times, there were a lot of people, you know, we tend to focus on the ones who are absolutely sure about what they believe and know what they believe. And yeah. we write religious histories based on these people. But a lot of people were like, well, yeah, I don't know, really. I'm just going to address exactly. it to the God and I, it'll go to the right place, I guess. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, I mean, this is exactly the problem for us, you know, especially when looking at descriptions. So you have this description of how can you, in some cases, you have crosses, you know, in the description right. of Saudi Arabia and um, right. Yeah, you have crosses, uh, but in other cases, these crosses actually look like people on camels. You know, they're very, they're drawn very closely <laughs> to camels, and you're like, is this a cross or is just, you know, this sort of a sort of way of indicating a man? You know, it's uh, it's it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you need to have imagination for sure. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, there's uh, plenty more work uh, to, to be done here. I, I think this is a good place to wrap this up. Do you have any final thoughts uh, about this topic or words of, you know, caution or what comes next in the field or whatever you'd like? 
Yeah, so I'm sure that many descriptions will come out in the next couple of years. Uh, maybe the book will be outdated very soon. I mean, of course, I don't hope that, but I also hope that, I don't know, in a way. Uh, so we have more material to engage with. Right. And this is not just in, in terms of descriptions. For example, I mentioned this monastery that was found in uh, the eastern uh, side of the Arabian Peninsula. This changes completely our understanding of Christianity in the East and its connection with Iran too. Um, so I know a lot will come out. Um, we're just at the beginning. Um, and it's interesting that, for example, the most important journal in the field, uh, Arabian Epigraphy and Archaeology, was just founded a couple of you know years ago, maybe wow. a decade. And I'm not 100% sure, but, you know, it's it's new. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's going to be space for many people uh, working on this in the future. Um, well, I will definitely be keeping my eye on this field and on any of your future publications. So thank you, Valentina, for coming on the podcast. Talk to this. Thank you uh, for uh, having me next to all these giants. <laughs> I feel so small. Oh, no, no. <laughs> this is open to everybody. That's the whole point. Thank you. Bye.